And Terry says that uh, things will work, and you concur. So I can take these glasses off so I can see what I wrote. i got to begin really fast that we're back on December the 4th, and that's because the lovely Lori is going to be gone for two weeks, and I cannot function. There's no way I can set everything up and clean the house. I can't do that. It's not possible. I Vacuuming is very difficult. It takes a lot of technical training, and I can't accomplish it. So while she's gone, uh, that will I will take a little bit of a time off. We'll make it up in, in December, we think. But we'll be back on December the 4th. And I've been squeezing a lot of material, a lot more material than I used to in every lecture. So uh, really, you really get one and a half every week now. Okay, so... Here we go. November the 13th, 2022, lecture discussion number 186. I hope that's correct. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. And as is the usual situation, um, the immediate previous lectures to today's number 186 have culminated with an overabundance of debris for which it is necessary now to begin the collation of all of that. Or if you prefer, same thing, different Sunday. The focus today remains on remains as it has been for the past, past few discourses here. And some might uh, characterize what I've done as tempered harangues. I would offer spirited advocacy. But uh, number 186 will be a wee bit of a departure. Up to this juncture, my intention was to offer scripture verses that are generally omitted in this 450-year-old dispute that is super-deterministic Calvinism and provisional Arminianism. So what I mean by that is that uh, I'm trying to find things that, that, the, that the traditional debate has overlooked. That's my intention. Uh, but starting now, from starting now, the, the time has come for a more strident tone. Uh, accompanied by a deluge of information, which, again, is the same thing, different Sunday. That's what I do all the time. And the reason I'm going to get more aggressive here today, and seriously, I plan on it, the data is absolutely overwhelming, in my opinion. Neither predestinarianism nor transitional, or transitorial, sorry, transitorial concepts, as they apply to salvation, neither one of those. The redemptive, uh, I'll repeat that. We have the redemptive work of Christ and these positions that, that there's a predestinari- predestinarianism to the redemptive work of Christ or there's the redemptive work of Christ is temporal, it's transitorial. Uh, that can't, as, as they apply to salvation, that, that can't stand. It can't withstand this avalanche, avalanche of biblical testimony. And I've always been puzzled by why the adherence to these different views or these conflicting views, how come they, they're undeterred by the torrent to me. There's just too much information in the Bible that disputes what they say. And why don't they recognize that is one of my concerns. Both Calvinistic and Arminianism tenets are error, absolute error, both of them. And without dispute, contrary uh, They're contrary to the nature and character of God and to the enumeration of his truth as found in his holy word. But yet, that doesn't matter. Now, they're going to argue with me. I know they will. They always do. They're going to say, you're the one in error. And I'm always open to criticism. I get a lot of it. 
And if I've made a mistake, I want to repair that mistake as quickly as I can. But if I think that I have not made a mistake, then I'm a little bit more strident, as I was going to say earlier. If you were listening last week to number 185, perhaps you remember Luke from Ohio asking about Moses and Adam. How many times, and you do this all all day long, Supper Dave, he's involved in this debate all the time. How many times have you seen a dissertation in this subject with respect to Moses and Adam's typology? Has anybody ever brought it up? They've never brought it up. They don't even know it's there. They don't care, and it doesn't matter. They're focused on their 1% of scriptures that they think they understand, and nothing can matter to them. And I made the point, yea, a point, that Moses is specifically stated by God in in God's Holy Spirit-inspired Bible. The perfect that comes, 1 Corinthians 13.10. At Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is said to be, is seen to be as a preemptory type of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the preeminent, preempting type of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15. And only Adam, Romans 5.14, and 1 Timothy 2.14, and Genesis 1.26, and Genesis 3.22, has equality to Moses as a scripture-sanctioned type of Christ. They're the only two. And assuredly, we, we discover many others who exhibit typological attributes, but only Adam and Moses are documented, written into the Holy Bible. They are actually there, written. This is a type of Christ, and this is a type of Christ. No other has, had, has that capability, or not capability, no one has been elevated to that level besides those two. And that makes their testimonies particularly relevant especially to the uh, discussion that we're having. How can you have a discussion on Calvinism and Arminianism without Moses and Adam? You have to have them. You have an incomplete argument otherwise. And of course you're going to have an incomplete argument because you're incomplete. Kurt Goodell was right. We should expect to locate prima facie evidence as to the truth of the salvation process, the salvific process. If anybody is going to testify about it typologically, it's going to be Moses and Adam. So we should be studying Adam and Moses. So here's an interesting question, at least to me. What is a type of Christ? What is it? Why are there types of Christ in the Bible? Why does God do this? Do this typology in Scripture. It's a common occurrence. For example, Abraham in Genesis 18, 16 through 33. We've discussed that recently. In the position of the mercy of God, not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9. Genesis 15. Moses is standing, I'm sorry, Abraham is standing before the Godhead, if you want to think of it that way, in the position as the mercy of God. We have Joseph rising up out of the pit, saving the world from famine. Abel, the slain shepherd. Isaac, the firstborn son that was to be sacrificed. David, the shepherd king of Israel. Solomon, the king full of wisdom. To name just a few of them, just some of them. It's all everywhere. Ada Ruth Habershon, study, study of the types. Should be essential reading. Absolutely needs to be in everybody's library. Here we've got Elisha. We have Joshua. Elisha, of course, testifies to the uh, omniscience of Christ. He knows things that no one else can know. He knows them at great distances. And, and of course, the typological people are to be placed side by side with the symbols of Christ, the three arcs. You know, I have the Ark of the Moses, I have the Ark of the Covenant, I have the Ark of Noah. Those three arcs form a, an entirety. 
I have the rock that, that Moses killed. That's the type of Christ. That out of the, the dead rock, the smote rock, comes the living water. I have the holy of holies in the Solomonic temple. The cedar wood covered by gold. That's the God-man. That's the, that's the hypostatic prophecy. We have the lifted up bronze servant. Serpent. Gosh, I can barely talk today. I'm trying to go fast. The Passover lamb, the rent veil, manna, the white, perfect, clean, beautiful white bread coming from heaven. Jacob's ladder, as you've heard me say many times. And again, that's a cursory list. All I'm doing is just giving you something very shallow here. There's so much more to this. And and so I'm just throwing the most common symbols in Scripture that have been presented by authors over the century. All of which testify of Christ's intention. We can find out what Christ is going to do and why he's going to do it by studying these portraits of him in Scripture. So we can figure out whether or not he has a predestinational position or does he have a free will position. We can decide that based on looking at the typology in Scripture, especially Adam and Moses. And you might want to add to those symbols the primeval light, the tree of life, the new city of Jerusalem, the Hebrew alphabet. All of those are testimonies. All of these people that are typological are testifying of Christ. So we can learn God's position by looking at what it is that these symbols and typologies have given us in the Old Testament. We have the river of life. And, and those that I just gave you, the primeval light, the tree of life, the new city of Jerusalem, the Hebrew alphabet, the river of life, those are more so hidden symbols. They're not usually considered by anybody. Very rarely. And so I would suggest, therefore, that uh, they're going to be a more challenging study because they've been so neglected. My favorite is the body of Moses. Not Moses, the body of Moses. There's a big difference between the body and the person. You are the person, not the body. The body's just a machine that manifests the person. So, But the fav- my favorite is the body of Moses. You've heard me talk about it a lot. Moses' body is a symbol for the body of Christ. So I can figure out what happened to the body of Christ. I, I can understand why the body of Christ is the way it is by looking at what happened to the body of Moses. The body of Moses is going to tell me information about the body of Christ. Much to, to the delight of Valjo and Susie from Bakersfield. I wonder if they're still listening. They're wonderful people. I wonder if they know that every couple of weeks or months or so, I throw in Moses' body. And I do it because of them. And I I know how much they are interested in. And and by the way, I don't want to walk that far. It's too much work. The body of Moses explains, and the body of Christ explains, why Michael and Satan, Jude 9, are, are in this conflict, this contention over the body of Moses. And why Michael says what he says. And why Moses, is, I'm sorry, why Satan even went after the body in the first place. Satan knew the body of Moses was significant, but I don't think he knew why. And we'll get to that as time goes on. Because again, you can take the typological elements of the Old Testament and find out whether or not your position in the New Testament based on what you have decided doctrinally is correct. If it doesn't line up with the typology, you have issues, is my point. 
yea, another point. And here's another point, yea, another point, is that the Bible is filled with hidden types and symbols that testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. They explain why he does and says what he does and says. Which, to repeat, causes us to focus on the why question, which is good. Always focus on the why question. Which is, which, why has God chosen to hide these things in His Word? Why has He done it? And what do we have to do to find them? To know about them? You have to search for them. Why did He put them in for us to search out and find? And I answered the question in the question sorter. Why does God intend us to seek after Him to find Him? I could put that on the board if I didn't have so much material today. Seek and find. That's everywhere in the scripture. To repeat, what is seeking? What is the seeking process? I said that last, last lecture. Amos 5, 4 through 6, Psalm 22, 26, Luke 11, 9 through 10, Matthew 11, 28 and 30, Jeremiah 29, 13. Amos 5, 4 through 6, seek me that you may live. He wants us to live. That's why he hides things so that we can seek after them, find them and live. Obviously, God believes we have the capacity to seek after him, doesn't he? Seeking him results in eternal life. That's God's definition of living. When he says live, he means really live. He doesn't mean what we're doing now. He means the eternal life that comes in the new city of Jerusalem. Luke 15, 8 through 10 is the lost coin parable. Everybody knows the lost coin parable. I will ask uh, the uh, amazing Supper Dave, have you heard the lost coin parable come up in the Calvinistic argument? Well, they do it. Yes, and I'll give you their view here on it in just a second. The woman searches for the one lost, now think about what I'm going to say, lost coin parable given by who? Who gave this parable? Jesus Christ. What's the possibility in this parable there is an explanation for the salvific formula? Huge. It's going to be huge. The woman searched for the, searches, I'm sorry, gosh, for the one lost silver coin. So she's searching. What do you know about the woman? God says the woman is searching. So can the woman search? Yes, she can. She has the capability of searching. Now I want you to start beginning to ask yourself, what is searching? What's the, what's the flow chart, if you will? How does it manifest itself? What's the origin of searching? I'm going to search for something. I'm going to search for whatever it is. It might indeed, huh? Just maybe. The woman searches for the one lost silver coin. When she finds it, what does she do? She rejoices. So she can search. She can find something that she lost. And she rejoices when she finds it. Oh, what are all of those things? And that takes us to John 17:12. For those whom you have given me, I have lost none. That's what God says in a triune verse. So I have the Godhead there. I have the Holy Spirit, the Father, and I have the Son. And aloud, the Son says to, to the Godhead, Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none, except the Son of perdition. And that is one of the greatest, that's a great mystery. And we've yet to explore it fully. How can God lose men and angels? How does he lose something? How does the omniscient God lose anything? But he says he loses them. He says, I lost them. What does he mean? 
How does he lose them? What's his definition of lost? You should have a very good definition of what God means by lost before you run around and take other ideas and, and put them into positions that you can't defend. Mm-hmm. That's right. I have the lost accent. Absolutely correct. I'm going to suggest, not just suggest, I'm going to propose that John 17:12 is the linchpin. It's the hand grenade that unlocks, exposes, in my view, the Calvinistic Armenianism issue. You start understanding that John 17:12, and you've got an explosion. Also, Romans 3:11 through 12 it has to be reconciled. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. If you don't know that that is Psalm 14, 1 through 3, you could easily go off into the ditch. Everybody knows Romans uh, 3, 11 through 12, but they don't understand that it's, Roman, it's quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And if you don't know that, you might suppose incorrectly that Romans 3, 11 through 12 is in conflict with Amos 5, 4 through 6. Psalm 22, 6, Luke 11, 9 through 10, and all the other verses that have God urging us to seek after him, to search for him, and to find him. Why does God keep repeating something if we have total inability to do it? That makes no sense at all. Why does God, but here's the better question, why does God want us to search for him? What is searching? He obviously, again, he believes that we can search and find. So you have to wrestle with that. I I almost want to beg you to wrestle with it. The Calvinistic position on the lost coin is that the lost coin does not have the ability to seek the woman. That's what they say. The woman has to seek the coin. The coin can't seek the woman. Okay. What's the problem with that? They're telling me that the coin is not alive. Because the coin can't seek and find, so it's not living. It's not a living thing. It's not a person. The woman is the one sweeping and searching and rejoicing. But not the coin. The super-deterministic uh, uh, position is that they present the lost coin parable as proof that mankind is not a living soul capable of seeking God. That's what they say. It's like, we're just lost coins. We can't seek. He has to seek for us. That's their position. They usually assign the woman to be the role of who? Because she's doing the searching. She's in the role of God, absolutely. Uh-oh. You should be getting some goosebumps right about now. But I hope you, I hope you see the problems. Besides the first most obvious difficulty, if we seem, I'm sorry, if we sinful, whoever wrote this, I can't read his writing. So I try to predict what he's going to say, and then I'm wrong, because I have no idea what he's thinking. It's a big problem for me. If we sinful humans are the lost coins, thus that makes us non-living, totally unable to seek or find our creator, and keep in mind that non-living is not dead. Okay? A coin cannot die. It never had life. The prerequisite for death is life. So the coin can't be dead. It can't be a dead anything. Because if it was, that means you gave it life. Just by definitions. The hyper predestination Calvinistic view has placed mankind in the same category as a rock or a stone. Dead, absolutely dead, and means never had life at all. And if you have no life at all, then what about Genesis 2-7, where he breathes life life into you? 
Okay, what is that about? How do you, now you have an inconsistency because Adam is what? A type of Christ, isn't he? Notice that the woman has the urgency to panic. She's panicked. She's desperately searching for the missing lost silver coin and finds it. That's exactly right. You're getting ahead of the teacher, so stop it. Make him stop. You got control. <laughs> okay. But you're absolutely right. Silver is a symbol for blood in the scripture, Exodus 30:16. It's the blood atonement price, so it is linked to blood atonement. It's a symbol for blood, Christ's blood. The blood atonement price is a symbol for the atonement blood cost that Christ alone can pay. So we have a big oops here. And this is where their position on, on uh, the, the lost coin parable begins to unravel. The woman cannot portray God, as, as Supper Dave instantly recognized. Women are restricted to being ecclesiastical entities, mostly Israel and or the Bride of Christ, the church. Sometimes, well not sometimes, but the harlot, the, the, the great whore of Revelation 17.11. Or 17.18, sorry, chapter 17.18. Revelation 17.2 tells us that the inhabitants of the earth become drunk with the wine of her immortality. That's the Babylon whore, our adulterer, our Jezebelian, okay? the harlot. Revelation tells us that the inhabitants of the earth become drunk with the wine of her immortality. Your Bible might say uh, fornication. But it's not fornication, it's immortality in the Greek. Why the translation mistake? Because if, if she is telling the people that drink the wine of her and they get immortality, that sends us obviously to the taking of the mark of the son of perdition, Revelation 14.9. The mark of the beast is the mark of eternal death, ultimately, right? Those who choose the mark and worship the beast, they are willingly drinking of the wrath of God, damnation all along whether they knew it or not. They're always thinking, believing that the mark of the beast is going to give them what? Immortality. That's what they think. Notice that mankind can take and choose the mark of Satan. They can choose it. Now, if that's all they can choose, they can choose nothing but that, well, that's an interesting debate, isn't it? They can worship the beast dragon. They can believe the lie. So what can they do? They can choose the mark. They can worship the beast and they can believe the lie. But it doesn't apply to Christ. It only applies to the Antichrist. Big problems, I would suggest. The whore of Babylon is a religious reference. She's the, she is a church of worship, therefore fitting that the woman's symbolism of the lost coin. Okay. For today, I'll get back to the woman and the lost coin in, in the coming lectures. Human beings can lose things. Yeah, salvation is not a thing. You can't make salvation a thing. If you make salvation a created thing, what have you done? You have problems. Salvation cannot be lost because it not, it's not a thing. You can search for salvation. You can find salvation, but you can't lose it. Oh, welcome to the parable of the lost coin. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is a person. 
He even names himself salvation, right? It's the person of Jesus Christ. We can find Christ. We can rejoice when we find Christ, Revelation 7. God wipes away every tear. Why does he wipe away every tear? What causes tears? Well, you can have tears of joy and you can have tears of sadness. Would he wipe away all the tears of joy? There would be no need to do that, right? He would wipe away the tears of sadness. Joy and sadness. Sadness is wiped away. It is erased and joy remains. Okay? Keep that in mind. God blots out our sins. Blots out our sins and will not remember them. Isaiah 43.25, Hebrews 10.17. How does the omniscient Lord God Almighty forget the sins of the saved, the believing? What's his forgetting mechanism? How does he do it? He says he does it. Do you believe him or not? Well, if you believe him, then come up with an idea of how he does it. Where are you going to find this understanding of how he forgets things? How does he accomplish a forgetting? You have to be able to answer that question. So where is that in the Bible? Now, somebody has to explain it to us. I guarantee you that somebody does. Which type of Christ explains to you forgetting? My, oh, my. This appears to be a paradox. I find it ironic that the predestinationalists have no issue with Hebrews 10.17 and Isaiah 43.25, the forgetting of sins, the blotting them out. As you know, because you come here or listen to me, most of you are insomniacs, and I I give that benefit as an added uh, application. You know that the law of information says information cannot be destroyed. God says he can blot it out from the book of records and that he can forget. What us, that, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How is this differing from free will and God's omniscience? Hmm? I can forget and blot something out, but nothing can be destroyed. I have free will. You have free will. I have omniscience. Nothing is impacted. I'm asking for a friend that I don't have. I said last week, lecture 185, that Calvinism and Arminianism are both non-reconcilable. They're both incompatible with Psalm 36, 5 through 7. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 John 4, 16, Proverbs 8, 17. I'm talking about the loving kindness of God, the infinite depth of his judgment. It says his judgments are deep. I'm going to say his judgments are infinite. Deep is, is God's deep and our deep are not the same. You're talking about the, the creator of all things who is an infinite being and he can account for all variabilities and he has a solution for all of those things just by the very nature of his infinity. His righteousness, his loving kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness. There is no evil in God, First John 1, 5. No evil there. He has no evil thoughts, Psalm 92, 15. He abhors evil. Okay? And for those who are keeping score, Psalm 14, 1 says this. You're going to say, why are you bringing that back up? Because I hate to leave it out. This seemed like a good place. The fool has said in his heart, it's Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said it, who, who is it? The fool has said in his heart, let me repeat that, the fool has said 
in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. There is no one who does good. So what's the subject of the sentence? It's the fool who has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. There is, there is no one who does good that has that attitude. Okay? That's the context of Romans 3, 9 through 18. Who are these fools? What is the definition of said in his heart? The fool seems to have the ability to say something in his heart. Who are they? Where did he get that ability? Is there a process now? Because I have a fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Is there a process that changes fools into wise? Can I change a fool into wise? Not me, but can God do it? What's that process? How does it happen? What is the changing option that is in predestinationalism? Is there any opportunity you can change? No. But can a fool change into a wise? Yes. Okay, so there's changing. Now what do we do? Anyway, where was I? Is it true that God is love and also true that God is the judge, the infinite judge of everything of sin, that he is just? Is it just to condemn? If you say that he is just, that he has righteous justice, is it justice to condemn the damned into the lake of utter darkness without a trial and to do so on the basis of omniscient predestination? Would that be justice? Because somebody's saying that it is, that the great white throne is completely unnecessary if you have predestination, right? I submit that if predestination without free will is true, then the great white throne of Christ, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, it's there. It becomes a redundancy. It becomes uh, meaningless. If guilt is predetermined, in fact, it's hardwired. It's fixed in the soup. It's baked in the bread, whatever. Make your metaphor live with it. It's impossible to be changed. And yet we can change. God can't change, but we can change. So what capability of changing? Where did it come from? What's the process? If it's fixed and it's impossible to be changed or reversed, is that justice? Is that infinite judgment or justice? Deep. If no, if you answer no, which you should then we have a bombardment of problems. The word impossible immediately is the greatest of the problems. If it's impossible to be changed, if it's impossible to be reversed, then guess what we get to deal with? The word impossible. And they say it's impossible. They've said it to my face. If you are not saved, it is impossible to be saved. If God has predestined that you're not saved. Nowhere in Scripture does God say something like that is impossible. In fact, he says the opposite, doesn't he? Luke one thirty seven, which is in the frame of reference of the holy thing. Luke one thirty five. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy thing, Psalm 16.10, who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Hebrews 1.2. That's the context of Luke one thirty seven. And 137 says this, For with God, 
nothing is impossible. So I have one, I have somebody telling me it's impossible for you to be saved. And I have Luke 137, for with God nothing is impossible. And what is God talking about in Luke 135 and 137? He's talking about the holy thing. What is the holy thing? That's a bad question. Who is the holy thing? That is Christ himself. What's happening here? I have the birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And God, in the context of that, he says nothing is impossible. Chew on that a second, huh? Luke, Luke 135 establishes that the 1 Timothy 3.16, which is the greatest mystery of all, without controversy, without dispute, the mystery of godliness. The holy thing is the mystery of godliness, and God is saying nothing is impossible about the holy thing, the mystery of godliness. That's what he's doing here. That's God himself man, manifested in the flesh, the word made flesh, dwelling among humanity, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14. No one can conceive. We have not the capability. We cannot understand the hypostatic union, the God-man. We can't do it. It's the greatest mystery. We'll never be able to understand it. It will be a mystery forever. In the context of that, God says nothing is impossible. The Jesus God. No one can resolve the greatest mystery. Some some might dare say that the God-man is impossible. They will. That you can't have a God-man. But we know that's not true. We know we did give a a God-man. So with God, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have the entanglement of the brain in the... I'm sorry, the brain in the mind. I have the entanglement of the brain in the heart. I have the entanglement of the God-man. I have the entanglement quantum uh, in every particle in the universe. Why has he done that? To repeat the point. I have the mystery of godliness and God says after he describes the mystery of godliness, the holy thing, he says these words, nothing is impossible with God. With God, nothing is impossible. These are the meanings of Luke 135 through 37. The bottom line, the God man is not impossible for God. Has that ever come up in any of your arguments, Mr. Supper Guy? Have you ever heard Luke 135, 137 brought up in this discussion? No, it hasn't happened. The Jesus God is without controversy the greatest mystery, the greatest impossible made Possible. This is the greatest impossible, and God makes it possible. So start messing around with that. So, if that is the greatest mystery, and it's not impossible, what is not the greatest mystery? Well, that would be everything else. Allow me to be specific. The supposed contradiction that is the omniscience of God and the free will of angels, animals, and mankind, that is not impossible. That's possible because the holy thing is possible with God. But some consider the omniscience of God and the free will of angels, animals, and mankind to be unsolvable, as we know. I won't name names, but their initials are hyper-Calvinism. They have lots of impossibles. Has it occurred to anyone that if God can take a camel and extract a camel through the eye of a needle, Matthew 19.26, that's quantum tunneling, by the way, 
And if God, the omniscient God, the great rememberer, Genesis 14, I'm sorry, Genesis 40, 14, Genesis 8, 1, Judges 16, 28, 1 Samuel 1, 11, 2 Kings 23, Nehemiah 13, 14, Job 14, 13, Luke 23, 14. God is the omniscient great rememberer. That's what he said about himself. If the great rememberer has a mechanism in place to blot out and forget the sins of the saved, okay, surely, and don't call me surely, he has reached accomplished resolution to the alleged presumed impossible conflict between his knowing all things and his gift of free will existence. Boiled down, the question becomes, if he can forget, can he solve free will? Yeah, the answer is obvious, huh? If he can, if he can become the God-man, if he can produce the holy thing, if he can come with the hypostatic union, if we can have Jesus God, can he forget and can he solve free will? Can he forget our sins and solve free will? Blot out our sins and, call, and call, solve free will? I've often asked the theological superdeterministists, the determinists. I ask him this, is it really your hill to die on that God cannot reconcile omniscience with free will? That's your hill? The one whom, for whom it's possible to bond deity with humanity. You're saying he can't solve free will? That's the pinnacle of all things. If he can do that, nothing is impossible. Your position that he is unable with his infinity and his completeness to anticipate the solution to free will and his omniscience and to put a solution in place? Is it your position that it's impossible for him to reconcile free will and omniscience? He can't crack the omniscience and free will paradox? It's a paradox to you. Is it a paradox to him? No. Because nothing is a paradox with God. The solution, obviously, is Jesus Christ. Yeah, really. He is the solution. Everything else is subordinate to the solution. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. Nothing means what? Nothing. So you have something that you think is impossible. It can't be true. Nothing means no one has ever discovered, no one has ever invented, no one has unveiled a mystery that is impossible to solve. No one has done it. Only God has mysteries. And he presents them to us. We can't conceive a mystery to him. There's no such thing as a mystery to God. He has all the all of the information. Nothing is unsolvable. As you know, who made God is a stupid question. It is only valuable as a stupid person detection system. If you ask that question, uh, there's also there's also can God make a rock that he cannot move question. If you ask that question, beep. The detector just went off. If those are your impossible concepts, you've just been detected. Wow, I am doing fantastic. I thought there's no way I could get this done in the amount of time I have so far done it. I'm going to have to... How many minutes? I might, I'm going to have to slow down. My unsolicited advice that will be discarded by those who are certain of their positions and they are absolutely certain they are 
cemented and the difficult grenades and, and all kinds of uh, explosives can't get rid of them with respect to free will existence and the infinite mind of God. Whatever their position will be that's contrary to that possibility of existing as a solution, they're not going to move. I ask them this all the time. What do you think? Actually, I should put it this way. Why do you think that nothing can be true but your creed, your conception? That this is the only thing that can be true. Nothing else can be true but this that I have conceived. Why do you believe that? Uh Uh-oh. Because now you're believing something. From where is believing? What is believing? Can you believe everything except the most important thing to believe? Does that make any sense? John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? Yes or no? You can believe that, but you can't believe anything else. Or you, can't, you can believe nothing else, but you can believe that. Either way, it, it's a mess. You answer no to that, and I am totally un, unable to believe. How do you deal with John 11.25, where he says, believe? Do you believe me? No, I can't believe is your answer. Oh, my gosh. That's your answer. Only this position can be correct. With all due respect, and whenever somebody says with all due respect, they don't have any respect. They're not respecting. But I'll say it anyway. With all due respect, we suggest that an allowance for humility here might be in order. Quit thinking that you've got the answer. You don't. The answer is a person. The solution is a person. Which is why we have to make a list. We list make. List maker is going to list make. So I'm going to make a list. I could write it and burn some time and run out of time. I won't do that. At the top of the list, as you all would expect, number one on my list right now that we're going to make is consciousness. Because consciousness is a mystery. It's the mystery of the mind-brain. What is consciousness? What is the mind? How does the mind interact with the brain? Why is this entanglement between the mind and the brain there? Why does God love entanglement? He obviously does. My favorite question about consciousness, as you might guess, is what did consciousness come with? I always ask, where did consciousness come from? Now I'm asking, where did com- what did consciousness come with? What is the composition of the mind? God gave us a mind. He gave us consciousness. It comes from him. What does the mind and the consciousness, which is the same thing, how many applications, if you want to use a, a cell phone thing, how many applications do you have on your cell phone? How many applications does your mind have? How many capabilities does the mind have? What did God place into the mind? We are in the discussion of the supposition of total inability. The tenet that nothing, no one can alter anything. Predestination rules all things. It's super deterministic. Therefore, our consciousness, they will say, cannot, is not equipped to demonstrate any freedom or any form or order. That's what they will tell you. So I'm going to question that. 
Here comes more on the list after consciousness. So all these things that are also on the list, all of these are mental properties. We have love, hope, promise, joy, sadness, trust, obedience, gratitude, finding, searching, losing, confession, curiosity, humility, arrogance, seeking, fear, sacrifice, reasonings, repentance, experience, feelings, all thought, every thought comes with the brain. I'm sorry, the mind and the brain. And especially we have belief. If all of those things that I gave you, if we don't have any capability to do any of those things, If they're imprisoned by the design of God, I don't know what to say other than what. Are you kidding? You're denying the human condition completely, saying it's not true. It's an illusion. You see, when you eliminate free will or free choice, all of those things that I just rattled off are impacted, and they're impacted adversely. They're rendered inert. They're paralyzed. Is that the revealed plan of God? You're talking about the Creator. Is that what He did on purpose? All of those things are not true. They're not real. Is it His real to deny all will? That's a rhetorical question because the answer assumes the negative. No. You can't say that it is the will of God to deny all will. You can't. They do. But logically and certainly biblically, you can't do it. If we cannot believe the truth of Jesus Christ of our own will, what else can we believe? Can we believe anything? If we can't believe that, can we believe anything? It's the inverse of what I said earlier. If I can't believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, His Creator God, has come to save the lost, that He lost, He says. How did they get lost? It's back to that fantastic mystery. If we can't believe that, what can we believe? Anything. Can we believe anything? Is all belief of anything nothing? That's what they say. All belief is nothing because you don't really have it. So all belief, not just salvation, but all belief. Total inability doctrine extends. They don't know this. They don't think this. You can't confine it to just salvation. Once you establish that total inability exists, it exists everywhere. It, it And I'm sorry about this. Uh, not really. Fake sorry. This contamination that, that there is a total inability to believe that superdeterminism detonates this, it corrupts, it infects way beyond its original purpose, which was only to apply it to salvation. You can't apply that to salvation alone. The physicists don't do it. They say everything's an illusion. All belief is an illusion. All of those emotions, all of those mental properties are illusionary. And we should never be surprised by this. Philippians 2.12, the admonition in Scripture, to work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. What is that? That's reverence. You fear and you tremble when you're in the, uh, the, in the presence of God Himself. So when you're trying to work out your salvation, He says, you are in my presence. So you're working on salvation with fear of me, fear me, and trembling. Now I'm going to put that to the predestinationists. 
You have to know that when you're working out salvation, he says for you to do it with fear and trembling. Why does he say that? Because you're not going to do it with fear and trembling. You're going to come up with some goofy idea that destroys all kinds of stuff. I'm haranguing now. We're supposed to have awe and wonderment and astonishment with the salvation of God. Does that describe Calvinistic predeterminism? It does not. Uh Uh-oh. We are to reason logically. We have reason, we have logic. No, we don't, they say, because if you don't have belief, you don't have anything. You can't believe in Christ, you can't believe in anything. Those are thought processes that I listed off. Reason logic being one of the ones that is very important because the Bible wants us to be wise. Wants us to change from fool into wise. By doing what? Reading the Bible. The Bible will change me, won't it? Oh, wow. How can you not see that? He even says that when he resurrects us during the rapture, That we are changed. Oh, more changing. God changes us. Now, they won't really argue with that because they believe they're the only ones changed. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So we're in the presence of God and salvation and belief in the presence of God is to, we have to self-evaluate. We're to thoughtfully consider. Why are we supposed to do that about salvation? Why? Because it is miraculous. It's incredibly complicated. It's amazingly complex. The majesty, majesty of Jesus Christ is revealed in this thoughtful process of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. His thoughts are not like our puny, dumb thoughts. Calvinistic total inability doctrine, and I hesitate to refer to it as a doctrine, is a very simple concept. Our thoughts are primitive. Predestinational determinism, which is a redundancy on purpose, is not complicated. And that's, that tells you right there that you didn't work out your salvation in the fear, or with fear and trembling in the presence of God. Because you can't do something simple. You've eliminated simplicity just by the very nature of what he said in Philippians 2.12. Our thoughts are simple. They're primitive. They're rudimentary. They're incomplete. He is complete. Thank you. He has complete thoughts. We cannot conceive completeness, much less accomplish it. That's infinity. Stop assigning flawed human solutions, conceptions to God. It's the height of arrogance and disrespect. He is not like us. Again, how deep is God's thoughts? How shallow is Calvinism? It's a super deterministic precept. How complex is the creation? How long will the simple ones love the simple? Proverbs one twenty two, Hebrews five twelve through fourteen. They love the simple. It's not simple. If you have a simple solution, then you've got the wrong solution. If you can understand your solution, you've got the wrong solution. The very nature of the salvific process is that you can't understand it to its entirety. Only God can do that. He says so. Fear and trembling, reverence, awe, wonderment, astonishment. But no, you've come in there with your little stupid, no, I shouldn't say that, your little stupid simple idea.
That's right, and how he thinks as much as he, we can. We're supposed to try to think, pray what he would want us to pray. We're supposed to align our prayers with his will. Notice that we can align our prayers with his will. Wow. Can we work? Does total inability allow for work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? It does not. Because you have to have God's defining, His definition of work out your salvation. Total inability poisons Philippians 2.12. I think that's obvious. How about Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13? I submit uh, that the hyper-Calvinistic structure attempts to erase, negate Joel 2.32 and Romans 10.13. As well as keep in mind, God's word can never be laid waste as much as they try. These are the two great promise verses. Romans 10.12 begins uh, Romans 10.13 with this. So Romans 10.13 is going to come from Romans 12. 10.12, sorry. For the same Lord over all is rich towards all those who call upon Him. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Obviously, the words same and all and rich and all those and call and whosoever calls will be saved are problematic for those who adhere to total incapacity. Rich is vital here. God is rich. God is the same. God is rich. So define rich. Is rich dreadful and horrid? Because that's what Calvin said. It's a dreadful, horrid, horrible doctrine. Well, then it's not a doctrine. All you've got is dreadful, horrible. Is rich the dreadful, horrible interpretation as so described by the super-deterministic view 400 plus years ago? Is that compatible with God is rich towards all? How many is all? All means some? No, it doesn't say... Let me do this. And I recognize that there are some that will not be saved and that there's some that will be saved. But notice how I noted how I said that there were some who will not be saved based on their will and there are some that will be saved. We don't have unlimited will. We never will have unlimited will. But we have some. We're arguing over how much. What does it extend to? Did he give us a mind that had no will? And I think the obvious answer is obvious. I submit that rich towards all means merciful salvation, the gift of eternal life, a richness that can never be imagined, can never be bought, can never be understood, really, other than the loving kindness and the mercy of God Himself, 36, 5 through 7 Psalm. That's right. And it is the polar opposite of horrible, dreadful. There is zero, zip, nil, no possibility of rich being coexistent with horror or dreadfulness. Just throwing it out there. And he is rich towards all. Is whosoever and all, who is that? It's a binary question. Let me put it this way. Is whosoever and all, everyone? Yes or no? Yep or nope? 
And you may have noticed that I am working my way through my list. I'm working my way through my list. I've copied my list from his list because I looked at what we're capable of doing. What is the flow chart? It's a CH. It's not Schronister. What is the flow chart for calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does it, what do I got? It's going to go like this. I'm going to start with something and I'm going to work my way down box after box after box. And I'm going to get right here and I'm going to call out to be saved. How, what is that system? Put everything in the box. Give it to me. Obviously, you and I and we must think, decide to call upon the name of Christ. Thinking is a, what? What is it? It is a thought process. We have thoughts. Does anybody deny that we don't have thoughts? Where do thoughts come from? What are thoughts capable of? The thought will precede the action. You have to think of the action before you do the action. The action is a manifestation of the thought. And so the thought is able to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and make an audible sound. But what if you're a mute? Your tongue was cut off by the Assyrians. Your eyes were plucked out. Your ears were chopped off. You're a soldier of Israel. You can't say anything. So what can you do? You can think. You can have the thought that causes the auditory response. Here's Matthew 10.32. Never shows up in this debate. Never. Never heard it. I'm going to find out if Supper Dave has ever heard it. Therefore, whosoever confesses me before men, I will confess him also before my Father who is in heaven. So who says that? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Word made flesh, the infinite God, the second person of the triune Elohim. He says that. It's obviously a uh, Matthew 6, 9-14 through 14, Lord's Prayer reference because He says, Father in heaven. It's a reference, that reference is Matthew 10.32. But notice, God confesses. Okay? And mankind also has the same ability to confess. It's not the same confession that God has, it's much, much less. Obviously, it's infinitely less. But man has the ability to confess something, and God has the ability to confess something. Isn't that interesting? God confesses and man confesses. Both of them confess. So what is confessing? How does confessing Jesus Christ begin? By what means? One might suggest that the way you confess Jesus Christ is to have a thought of what? Belief. Oh, wow. And if I confess Jesus Christ is Lord, I confess He is Savior, He will confess me. So I can confess and He can confess. My confessing causes Him to confess. Not causes, but my confession is... Confessing is related to his confessing. Oh, isn't that interesting? Is it possible that my will is relative to his will? Is Is it possible that I have thoughts and he has thoughts? Now, I'm just saying that one one might suggest that. One might suggest belief foreshadows confession. Okay, one might. One did. One's doing that. Now, I could divert into the regeneration salvation theory and monergerism. 
It's something I will eventually address, but not today. Everybody relax. Just calm down. I won't do it. Other than to say regeneration before salvation theory has a boatload of difficulties and me thinks it does not mean what you think it means. We'll get into that probably on the 4th of December. Okay, now where am I now? Romans 10.14. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, sh- how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10.14. Look at all this stuff. How can they call on him? So I have people that call on him and, and they do not believe. And then I have people that call on him that do believe, but they have not heard. And, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And Solomon, of course, is the preacher in the Ecclesiastes and Christ is the preacher, the prophet. Uh, Solomon is a picture of Christ. So we can figure out what Solomon, what Christ is going to say as a preacher by what Solomon said. Now, obviously, it's a huge level difference. I noticed uh, Romans 10.13 is before Romans 10.14. I know how does he do it, right? It's amazing, this exegesis. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is comparing the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. That's the context here. The Gentiles who are not a nation, they are the ones who have never heard. So how are the Gentiles going to hear? They're not a nation. So somebody's got to preach to the Gentile. Who is going to preach to the Gentile? Who's the apostle to the Gentile? That would be Paul. So that's what he's talking about here. Israel heard, but they didn't believe. The Gentiles have not heard, and guess what's going to happen to them? They're going to believe. They can believe by hearing from a preacher. The Jews of Paul's time, and, and, and again, he's comparing the nation of Israel and the Gentiles who aren't, he not, never called a nation. But just Gentiles. The Jews of Paul's time still held to their teaching that said only Jews could or would be saved by God. It's called exclusivity. And it's a firmly held ancient precept. And it's going on today. Gatekeepers want to be gatekeepers. You can't be saved unless I say you're saved. Whether it's lordship salvation or it's predestination, it's always the same thing. I'm saved, you're not. How, do the Islams believe that? They absolutely do. How, how about the Catholics? Do they believe that? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody believes they're saved and nobody else is. Not everybody, but most people. It's crazy. Not crazy. It's predictable. And, and again, God, Isaiah 65.1.2 calls this. He calls it in 65.1.2. And he calls it in Romans 10.20. Disobedient and contrary to his word, this exclusivity. If you have a position where you're the exclusive one, you're the gatekeeper, you're the one that decides who's saved, and oh, a lot of pastors do it, and if you think only your guys are going to be saved, well, then he calls that disobedient and contrary to my word. Isaiah 65.1.2. That's his ad- admonition here. To the nation of Israel. Get off of this. It's not true. The Jews are not the only ones going to be saved. The the Gentiles are going to be saved. It has always been God's stated plan. He says so. That whosoever calls on his name will be saved. Don't kill Gibeonites. Bad move. Anyway, 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is long-suffering towards us. Rich not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I have put rich in there because that's what I believe rich where it belongs. Predestinational rigidity is not in any way harmonious with Second Peter three nine. Because he says in Second Peter three nine, I want everybody to be saved. If he wants everybody to be saved, what causes people not to be saved? What's the only thing that can cause people not to be saved? Not to believe. And what's that? 
A decision of the what? Of the will. Final word. Mankind can repent from his unbelief. He can do it because that's what he says. They can repent from their unbelief. How does that work? I have the ability to repent from my unbelief. How does that work? Okay, that's all I got. I got it done on time, didn't I? Okay, you're lying. I'm two minutes past. But I slowed down in order to be late. So, it's intentional. 